Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Lord our God, we want to have a church that is shaped by your word. And yet sometimes your word is really hard to understand and hard to know how to apply. But we know, Lord, that you are good and that the gifts of your spirit and the gift of the Lord Jesus are at the centre of what we do. And so we pray that this morning you might stir those things up in us so that we would see you more clearly and know your great grace and love for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Well, I've been away this week. Uh, We've been in uh, Central Australia. It's been beautiful. It was so warm. It was amazing. Uh, And yet grumbling along in the background. Um, If I can get you to head back into that uh, for me there, Jackie. Can you just check that the slides are going to work for me. There we go. Grumbling along in the background has been this. Uh, This is uh, Andrew Thorburn and Guy Mason uh, from uh, service at the Anglican Church City on a Hill in Melbourne. Uh, And unless you've been under a rock, you'll know that um, Andrew Thorburn uh, was appointed the chairperson of uh, Essendon Football Club And then, because of his role as the chairperson of the board or a warden at City on a Hill Church, uh, then he resigned from that position. The issue uh, that has been raised because of uh, Thorburn's appointment is, of course, how the world and the church interact and particularly on matters of inclusion and diversity. This sermon was always going to be entitled An Inclusive Church and it just so happens that this week it feels a little pointier. What does it mean in our world to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ as well as exercising leadership and authority in a business, in sport, in a school, where inclusion and diversity are the order of the day. Does the church have anything in common with these values? Does the church sit apart from the humanity's uh, need for inclusion and acceptance? Does it preach exclusion and intolerance? Or is there inclusion at the heart of what God has done in calling a community together around the Lord Jesus Christ and around his table? I'm not going to be able to answer every question that you might have or in fact that I might have about the issues in our media 
or in fact about this passage today. Uh, it is, as commentators say, fiendishly difficult to understand what Paul really means because there's confusion over uh, language, there's confusion over translation, there's confusion over reference that we don't understand, and perhaps too with some paradoxes that seem to be later in the letter. However, what we will look at are issues of inclusion in the Lord's Supper and issues of inclusion for women and men in ministry. And my questions coming out of the text, I think, are with the Lord's Supper, is there differentiation without inclusion in Corinth? And in Corinth, with gender in ministry, is there inclusion without differentiation? Well, let's take the Lord's Supper first, because it's a bit easier. <laughs> but actually, it's a little more terrifying too, because I don't know if you've been to as many church services as I have, but I'm not sure if I've ever said that did more harm than good may as well not have happened, would have been better if it had not. But that is what Paul is saying about the gatherings that the Corinthians are having where they celebrate the Lord's Supper. I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. What could cause Paul to say something so serious? Well, it's the way in which the Lord's Supper is being shared. Not really about the way in which the Lord's Supper is understood, what is the bread, what is the wine, what is going on, but the way in which the Lord's Supper is being shared. This is about who is included and how they are feeling in the community of Christ. So he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? by humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then jumping down to verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. The church in Corinth didn't meet in the synagogues anymore. They met in homes. And when they shared communion or the Lord's Supper and the Apostle Paul has uh, gone through what they would usually use in describing the Lord's Supper, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you uh, and that we use today in our Anglican liturgy. But they wouldn't have <laughs> these tiny little 
uh, cups and wafers, and soon you'll be pleased, neither will we. Um, we are transitioning back to having the little individual uh, cups and the shared loaf, and you'll be able to move around and come up. Uh, but each person would come as though they were coming to a potluck dinner. They would bring their own food, and uh, those that were wealthy, maybe they would pack a picnic basket full of Fortnum and Masons, if you uh, know that's the, the, the cream of the crop of uh, British food, and they would have their pate and their caviar and their beautiful sourdough, and uh, they'd have the best wine, and uh, who knows? And then others... Uh, because the church in Corinth was really diverse. It had wealthy people and uh, those who maybe had been slaves, those who were working class, those who were poor. They would come with whatever they could and perhaps even nothing at all. And instead of putting everything out so that everyone would share and then they would also have the bread and the wine... It seemed like household groups or perhaps even class groups were sharing what they had together over here. Oh, you can imagine, a bit like a schoolyard. Uh, and those who didn't have were being left out. And this sense of exclusion, Paul said, is actually despising the church of God because it humiliated those who had nothing. Often I've been a little bit embarrassed that in an Anglican church or uh, churches like ours, we have only such a tiny amount, you know, a tiny biscuit, a tiny little drink, and feel like, well, where's the abundance? But actually Paul might commend us in some ways because it prevents this sense that some have a lot and others have none. It keeps the focus on what Paul wanted the Corinthians to do, and that was that all are included equally around the table of Jesus. Earlier on in the book of Corinthians, Paul has talked about communion being a participation in the body and blood of Christ. And here, like he does earlier in the passage, plays on the word head, here he's playing on the word body. So in having communion, you are experiencing union with the body and blood of Christ. We as Anglicans, Protestants, don't believe that Jesus is on the table somehow in the bread and wine, but we do believe that he is at the table with us in this meal. That it is not simply a meal of remembrance, but it is a meal of participation, of union, of unity with Jesus. But the body of Jesus, Paul is saying, is not simply being unified or participating in Christ's death and resurrection. It's participating with the full community. This is the body of Christ. And so if you eat the supper in a way that ignores your brothers and sisters 
and somehow by what you're doing denies their participation, then you are sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So Paul Paul would say that differences in class and wealth from the world will be present in the church. And we hope they are. We want diversity of background. We want diversity of employment. We want diversity in socioeconomic status. But these differences in class and wealth must be managed and expressed so that the unity of the body of Christ is protected. This is no different to the way in which we manage and express our rights and our freedoms in the world. We in the body of Christ, if we have a lot, do not consider all that lot ours to be grasped, but instead we share. Instead, we do not take everything that we could. We do not even live to the standard, perhaps, that we could afford in order that others may not be humiliated but may know themselves to equally be welcome at the table of the Lord, sharing in his body and blood, knowing his love, knowing his forgiveness. So the Lord's Supper meal is the place for this unity with each other and union with Christ to be experienced most powerfully. We get all the feels in worship, in music. Maybe uh, if you're at a church that had um, an even better LCD screen at the back, then it'd be even more and the lights and the But Paul is saying the power here is in a meal, the table, the sharing, the unity, the participation in Jesus together. And so if you ignore or exclude others at the table, you're actually harming the body of Christ, both the community and in some ways because the community is part of Christ, you are acting against the body and blood of the Lord. And so he actually speaks of judgment um, being present in the Corinthian church and it's uh, an outworking of what Pedram spoke about uh, last week when he said the people of Israel were baptised in Moses and they were together, but still some of them died in the wilderness. They experienced the Lord's judgment. Paul is saying, in the church in Corinth, many are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, that is, died. And I want you, he says, to know that sometimes... When there is sickness or death in the body of Christ, it is a warning and a discipline that something is off, something is not right. 
He's not saying that all sickness is that, all death is that. Everybody dies. Everybody becomes sick. But in this case, the Corinthians were meant to open their eyes to the potential that something was wrong and that the Lord was disciplining them. The Lord's Supper was to be a place of inclusion. Yes, there was differentiation in the church. There always would be, and we want there to be. But at the Lord's Supper, this differentiation must not lead to exclusion. But what about women and men in ministry? Here I think the question is, is there inclusion without differentiation? I wonder if you remember right at the start of this series um, that I said that it was a full and messy church in Corinth. And just like when one's house is messy, uh, sometimes that's because there are children there and those children have a lot of toys to play with. And for the Corinthians, they did. And we're going to start to have a look at that from next week. But the Holy Spirit had been poured out and was active uh, amongst this community. And Paul says to each one, this is in chapter 12, each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, another a message of knowledge by the means of the same Spirit, another faith by the same Spirit, another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. There was so much going on and it was so different and so powerful compared to the life that these Corinthians had lived before. And the surprising thing was, for Greco-Roman people, that these gifts had been poured out on both men and women. There were lots of things to play with for both boys and girls. Because this is really at the heart of this passage. Every man who prays or prophesies and every woman who prays or prophesies. Don't let all the rest of this passage overshadow the fact that both men and women together, mutually, were both praying and prophesying, exercising spiritual leadership and influence and mutual ministry in the body of Christ. And I'm not sure exactly what it is that Paul is commending the Corinthians for uh, in verse 2, but perhaps it is this, that everyone is exercising the gifts of the Spirit, just like in Acts 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. 
men and women using the spiritual gifts God has given them to build up the body of Christ is the inclusion that Paul is, I think, commending here. But there's a question mark over the way in which the men and the women were acting, dressing, or um, relating to one another as they did this. Gordon Fee um, thinks that the Corinthians were so enamoured with the gifts that they had been given, particularly the gift of tongues. And we'll see in, verse, in chapters 12 to 14 that Paul really does take pains to say to them, uh, tongues is great, but prophecy is even more important for the building up of the church. And he refers to tongues as tongues of men or tongues of angels. And Gordon Fee thinks that the people were so enamoured with the gift of tongues and understanding it as an angelic language that they felt that they were almost like angels themselves. And knowing what Jesus had taught about angels, that angels kind of were this genderless, uh, you know, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. And if you've been around or you've done some reading in 1 Corinthians uh, and you remember chapter 7, that would be an interesting uh, thought that if they felt we're like angels and so now marriage maybe doesn't have the same place that it used to, maybe gender doesn't have the same place that it used to. And of course, Paul's teaching that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So the thought is that the women in Corinth were uh, rejecting the dress code that showed a woman to be both respectful, married and virtuous in Greco-Roman society, the veil. There's actually a, a wide variety of evidence about how women covered their heads or didn't in uh, Corinth or uh, in Greco-Roman society. Uh, and it's quite diverse, the evidence. So it looks to me like those that were respected matrons, uh, married women, those who held um, a virtuous position in society would often veil their heads. So this statue is an example of that, a virtuous Athenian woman. I think in this picture here, you can see that those with head coverings are likely to be maybe the married or the head of the household and the ones, the women without the head coverings perhaps are the young ones, the attendants uh, or the virgins. So the question then is, if we are all equal in Christ, if the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon men and women, do we then bring the semiotics or the symbols of gender into the church? Do we need to? Particularly when uh, Roman women went into temples they would veil. In our worship, the Corinthians are wondering, should we do that? 
Should we have any marks that differentiate us? If the women are going to cover their heads, maybe the men should do that too. And so Paul says, I actually want you to maintain the practice of covering your head when you go into religious worship or covering your head as a sign that you are a married woman, virtuous and respected. And I want you to keep that in the church and there are good reasons why. If you don't want to cover your head, if you feel that you are so much like the angels that gender doesn't apply to you anymore, then you may as well shave your head completely. Remove all the symbols of femininity. And if you don't want to do that, you're still acting like a woman, please cover your head. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. This is notoriously difficult, not just to understand, but of course to easily apply to ongoing generations. What do you do if you say that this is about men looking like men and women looking like women? It is a fool's errand to try and list what that, then that needs to look like in the church. I wore pants on purpose today, but they're not men's pants. You wouldn't say that just because I'm wearing these pants, I'm not dressed like a woman. Similarly, I have long hair. But if I was born in Africa, if I was of African descent, I wouldn't be able to grow long hair like this. So clearly, there is um, principles at stake that cannot be put into uh, examples that will be enduring either across time or across culture. A man may not choose to wear a skirt up here on the stage in Melbourne, but he might in Scotland or Fiji. He might wear a full robe in the Middle East. So I think that this is probably not... It's not worth trying to say men need to wear like this, women need to wear like this. And in fact, there may be more going on about respect, about virtue, than there is about signs of what's a man and what's a woman. 
I think that this might be about order, mutuality and respect as much as it is about gender. i tell you why. When Paul says, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and I've left out the middle bit, and the head of Christ is God, this is language that he has already started to use in chapter 8 and he continues to use in chapter 15 about the different roles in salvation and creation that the Father and the Son or God and the Christ, the Messiah, have. There is nothing wrong, he wants to say to the Corinthians, in having order and differentiation, even different roles within the body of Christ, because God himself functions in that way with creation and salvation. So, in chapter 8, he says, There is no God but one, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. He is making a distinction, a differentiation between what the Father did in creation from whom all things came and what Christ did in creation through whom. That's the kind of Colossians and Philippians language. But then in chapter 15, he kind of goes from the uh, salvation to the fulfilment of all things. And so Jesus is the one who is um, now replacing Adam as the one who brings life. Death came through a man, now the resurrection of the, uh, from the dead comes also through a man. In Adam we die, in Christ all will be made alive and then there's a kind of Christ does this, he's the first fruits and then he will hand everything back to the Father. Not because the Son is uh, different in essence or eternally subordinate to the Father, but because each of them are playing a part in bringing salvation and fullness to the world. And so I think that whatever is happening in this very difficult sentence, it is something to do with the differences in what Christ the Messiah and God do in creation and in relationship with one another. So Christ is the head of man in the sense that, as in Adam, all die, so in Christ all be made alive. He is the one, the source of all life for humanity. But Christ himself, the Messiah, serves the Father. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead took the nature of a servant. So the source or the, the preeminent one there is God the Father. Then for man and woman, man was created and woman was taken out of him. 
There is in the creation account an order. Man was created first and then woman came as part of the fullness that was to be humanity. Gender speaks to the ordered nature of God's creation, the way in which there are roles, the mutuality, the respect and the relationship. A culture's semiotics of gender and respect don't have to be rejected due to our equality in Christ. In fact, gender differentiation with equality and mutuality points to God's good order and creation as well as to Jesus' work in salvation. Women can be women. Men can be men. I can maintain my wedding ring when I come and preach because I am married. Phil can make ridiculous jokes and I don't do anything about it. (laughs) Is this, though, about women's subjugation? Because maybe I've just created a huge smokescreen because it really seems like head means boss. I'm in a pretty privileged position standing up here with my head uncovered telling you about the Bible. There are lots of people around the world for whom this matters a great deal. When I became a Christian, I didn't really know what that meant and the Lord gave me 1 Corinthians 11.1 and he said, this is what it will be to be a Christian. Imitate me then just as I imitate Christ. You're to imitate Christ and you're going to live in such a way that people will imitate you. I didn't read on to verse 2, verse 3. What if I had? What if I had read from... The head of every woman is the man. And that was one of the first things I learned from the scriptures. Would I have been able to deal with that? Would I have been in a privileged position to be able to explain that away? Today is the 10-year anniversary of Julia Gillard's famous misogyny speech. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. And the world looks on and reads the scriptures and thinks that the Bible is so out of touch. Iran is in turmoil because of a woman's head covering. This is a woman cutting her hair, as many have, in protest. Because 22-year-old woman, Ms. Amini, died in custody after being arrested by the morality police for not covering her head. These things are not academic matters. They're not something for me to muck around with up on the platform. 
to explain or justify. They really matter. Paul was not a misogynist. The Apostle Paul was actually radically equal in how he dealt with men and women. And I tell you this because it's in the passage. After talking about the order of creation and saying, man was made first, woman came from man, she was made for him. And In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of, and the Greek is just so, also man is through woman. Do you remember the froms and throughs? From the Father through Christ. Here Paul says, I understand we always talk about woman coming from man. But let's have a think about this. Men also come through women. There is a radical interdependence in the body of Christ, between men and women. Woman did come from man, but now man comes through woman. You need each other. You are equally gifted. You don't have to become the other in order to minister. And if in your culture or even in your understanding of the Bible... The husband is the head of the wife. You do not need to overturn that for a woman to be able to serve and pray and prophesy in the church. All people are given the Holy Spirit. Each one, no matter background, no matter wealth, no matter gender, comes to the table and is gifted to build up the body of Christ. But more than that, this is actually a matter of choice for the woman. This is a very, very difficult verse to understand. But the language of authority here is not actually that this uh, or is... The covering is an authority from someone else over the woman. The only way Paul uses authority in 1 Corinthians is this authority that I have that I am laying down for the sake of other people. The woman chooses in this context to cover her head so that those gender and respect distinctions are maintained. But she does that in the same way as you or I lay down our rights, our freedoms for the sake of the gospel inside and outside the church. Because of the angels is almost impossible for us to understand. There are as many interpretations as there are interpreters. 
Perhaps it's just because there's the presence of the angels in worship and it's a mark, a choice for her of respect. Maybe it's something altogether different. There was a huge background of angelology in, um, uh, in Jewish thinking that we don't understand. This is not about the state telling a woman that she is excluded, unclean, irresponsible, immoral if she doesn't cover her head. This is not about using women for political ends. This is about maintaining gender, knowing that you are included. You do not have to change. You do not have to flatten everything out. The Lord's Supper is differentiation without exclusion. Men and women in ministry, differentiation without exclusion. We're going to share the Lord's Supper in just a moment, but uh, I, I probably feel more passionate about this than I, um, than I want to let on because I, I want there to be scope for us to be able to disagree and interpret some of these things differently. Uh, I would disagree with some of the things that happen at City on a Hill, but I stand with them as people who want to include people around the table of Jesus. I do. But for me, I think that men and women working together in ministry, exercising leadership, building up the body of Christ being who they are in Christ actually is a better world. When a male-based culture is reformed into a male and female-based culture, it presents a truer picture of the character of God who created all people as his image bearers. This is what it means to share in communion together. All people, all backgrounds, all bank balances, men and women, with the spirit poured out, sharing in the love and life of Christ. Amen.